0: I want to encourage you, you've got your Bibles uh, on your phone or uh, in your hand, uh, paper, uh, to turn to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our look at the first seven chapters of Acts this summer. And, and again, I just want to remind us as we get into this this summer, the focus of this is to remind us and help us understand and see uh, the apostles, the disciples of Christ that uh, moved from Uh, Some scared, um, worried, concerned, um, maybe not even really fully believing in Jesus' uh, followers uh, to these uh, bold uh, men and women speaking the gospel truth, proclaiming Jesus' name. So it's both the acts of the apostles and the acts of the Holy Spirit uh, happening together. And I want to remind us as a church, we are the church. Um, we'll talk more about as we get into this today because today's uh, message really does look into what the beginnings of this church look like. Um, so as we've uh, gone through this study so far, we've seen uh, the six weeks of waiting after Jesus' ascension into heaven of the 120 followers of Jesus, the uh, waiting for the encounter of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to come and be with them and empower them to go out. Uh, and then we show that the Spirit of God coming uh, was f- uh, preempted by a loud rushing wind, by tongues of fire, individual fires over each of them, a symbol of God's empowerment of His uh, Spirit in the midst of each individual person. And that's significant. Um, we, we know in Jesus' um, crucifixion and resurrection that the The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing the no longer was there anything separating us from from God, which is great. Uh, But this is another picture of that tabernacle temple moment uh, when the Holy Spirit is now coming to dwell with us, in us. Um, Not just that there's nothing separating us, but now God is in us and with us. And so this movement of the spirit coming into those believers also draws a crowd. It says the whole city came in. And just for a picture of that right now, I know not all 180,000 or 200,000 of uh, the um, inhabitants of Jerusalem, sorry, I've got dry, dry uh, COVID throat um, showed up at their doors. But it, it, so many people came, the whole city knew what was going on. And so there are these 120 followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit begin to speak in different languages, declaring the good news of Jesus. <coughs> Sorry. And um, Peter takes this opportunity to share about Jesus. And that's where we left off a few weeks ago. Jesus filled, or Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the very people that were shouting to crucify him Um, to kill him, now he is bringing the truth to them. And so we're seeing this as the beginning of the church, the ecclesia. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't call this the church right here. (coughs) Sorry. But um, this is the beginning of that. And if you were to think of this, it might also harken back to an encounter between Peter and Jesus. Again, so much of this early stages of the, the church is built upon Jesus uh, uh, what Jesus said to his disciples, specifically Peter here. So if you hold your finger in chapter two, and want to turn back to Matthew 16. <coughs> I want us to hear this good news of Jesus. Good night. Of Jesus and Peter, Peter's interaction here. And it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, he renames him now. You are Peter, which means rock. Okay, so he's like, you are Petrus, you are rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of, of heaven, and wherever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. (coughs) We see this, again, this picture of Peter, Simon Peter, who, again, Jesus is renaming and saying, you are rock. Um, Do we we see Peter's uh, life exemplified out as a rock? Um, No, we see, again, later, he is turning away from Jesus, denying Jesus, but yet now here he is clearly living out this idea of being Peter the rock, Petros, and the church is being built upon him, even as we speak. And so Peter proclaims the good news of Jesus, shares the beautiful picture of Jesus's sanctifying love for the people. And what Jesus was saying in Peter, and telling to Peter, wasn't that Peter was now gonna go construct some building, right? That the church was not about a building, it was about a people. And we see this again, even as we look back to the pictures of this, Jesus taking away uh, the veil being torn in two, seeing the tongues of fire come and dwelling over his followers, his disciples. This is another picture of what the church is being built into. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's not an activity, right? We're not going to church right now, right? This this church is not um, the firehouse, It is not uh, this house that we're in right now. It's not even this Zoom gathering. It is made up of the people of God living out their identity in Jesus, living out their, their fullness of who God is in them, in the world around them. And I know that can seem like semantics, right? Many people are saying they were going to church today, or you might even say we have to do church or go be the church, Right? but we are the church itself. It's not a place that we are at. It's the people of God. That is not semantics. That is the reality of the gospel, that he is changing us into the building blocks of the church, that he is working in us. He is making us new. We even read it in Colossians this morning, that he is the head of the church, the body that is the church, the Soma that is the church. So when we read uh, these verses 42 through 47 which are to me for most people that are looking at the church in modern day times and going like hey the church doesn't seem to we see the brokenness of the church today right we see the uh, the fallen leaders we see a church being about getting people to a building Um, and even ourselves we could probably look back at ourselves over the last few months and begin to recognize how we have not seen the purpose and the power of the church lived out like is seen in Acts 42 through 47 of chapter 2. And so I want us to look at these verses, and then I want us to just think about some of these simple things. There's four things that he points out here, and then four things that he um, illuminates even more, Luke does as he's writing this. And so let's read Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Acts chapter (coughs) 2. <clears throat> Sorry, bear with me in the cough. I've been fine all morning. Uh, let me pray right now because maybe even a little spiritual attack right now trying to take my voice away. Father, I pray right now um, that in the midst of this dry throat and cough that wants to derail or distract that your spirit would work through mine today. You would remind us that we are the church that we are empowered and emboldened and filled with the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and that we have good news that people need to hear and that you are still about changing lives. That is not stopped. So as we proclaim this truth this morning, I pray that you would... um, uh, in this cough. You would help us clearly focus on this and that your spirit would, would pierce our hearts. Remind us of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Again, we love this. You can even go back to verse 41. Uh, and he says at the end of his sermon, it says, so the those who received his word and were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, Imagining right now in the city of Jerusalem, there's roughly 180 to 200,000 people living in the city. And now 3,000 of them have come to faith in Jesus. And then this uh, is written about what it began to look like, the beginning of the church. And says in verse 42, And all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all. And the apostles performed many miracles, miraculous signs, and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and, miraculous, uh, and, and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in the homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared meals with great joy and generosity all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So we see in these verses, again, verses we've talked about, verses that are the core to why we are doing what we're doing is recognizing that the church is more than a building, right? The church is not a place, the church is a people living it out. And what does it look like to live this out in everyday life? What does this look like? And so the four things we see here, they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching or God's word. Um, they devoted themselves and they were uh, uh, focused on fellowship or koinonia. We'll talk about that here in a moment. And then each sharing meals, including the supper, uh, seeing this, this idea of communal living and they devoted themselves to prayer. And so basically what you see in these, in these verses is verse 42 gives you the outline of the four things, and then verses um, uh, 43 through 47 give you a picture of what this looks like uh, to be kind of lived out. And so I'm going to take each one of these and break them up as they go. The first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to God's word, right? So at the, in these days, these new believers are, are encouraged to listen to, those who followed after Jesus. Remember, it was important to the disciples to replace Judas with someone who had been there, who had seen and heard all the things from Jesus that as they went to tell they were not just telling their own stories, but what had actually seen and taken place with Jesus. And so you see them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoting themselves to God's word. Verse 43, you see a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And you see this also connected to in verse 46, they worship together at the temple each day. So I want you to think right now what it meant for them to devote themselves to the apostles teaching. Um, This gets used and misused, I think, in in lots of different ways. One, um, it is talking specifically about the apostles teaching. It says they gathered regularly and worshiped together at the temple. So yes, it's about teaching. We need to gather together for teaching. Right? That is super important. That's why we gather together. Not because you've just got to hear what I have to say so that I can have a, a reason for what I do, but because we need to hear God's word proclaimed. Right? They continued to do that over and over again. In fact, so much, they were like, they wanted to hear the truth of God proclaimed, and so they joined together daily. Right? They shared and they continued to share what they learned. But this devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching also means living it out, right? We need sound teaching, but we also need to take uh, um, the word and, and, div- and, like, take it on ourselves. First Peter 2.2 tw- uh, two, two says this, Like newborn babies long for pure milk of the word, uh, that it, by it you may grow in respect of salvation. So even Peter's recognizing like the way we grow, the way we mature is by God's word. It's both the proclaiming of it and the daily ingesting of God's word. We need it daily, right? Um, this past week, uh, or more, I guess since I've been come off the mountain, the, the kind of Christian pastor Twitter has been in a little dust up about uh, how long uh, people should teach. Like what's the appropriate amount of teaching? Is 20 minutes too short? Is 45 minutes, not long enough. Uh, all kinds of argument over this. And, and it's interesting. I had a conversation this week with a church planner in Houston and we were talking about um, he's, he's um, kind of restarting right now and trying to figure out the importance of the Sunday gathering. And both, we both agreed the gathering is important. We need God's word. But in, an, in a year, 365 days, we have uh, one year, we have 8,760 hours. Right, And if we were, um, like most churches, and we gather every Sunday, we don't even do this, so this is going to be even less for us. For 52 weeks a year, if you spend an hour and a half in a gathering, which is not even all an hour and a half of teaching, but an hour and a half for a gathering is a pretty long gathering. You guys endure that most weeks. Um, But an hour and a half, that would give you 78 hours of the word proclaimed and taught for you to hear if, if you took that, that is less than 1% of your year. Less than 1%. So if we were to say they're devoting themselves to God's teaching, was like they realized they needed it every day. Daily encounters with the Lord, so much so that they begin to gather together daily. It was a part of their daily rhythms, right? So yes, maybe that means we ought to have more times when we're teaching one another. Right, Or well, we do that through missional communities or DNA groups, where we're continually staying in God's word. Right, but the problem is, I think most of the times we fight the need. This like we just need more information. If we just studied God's word, God's word more, that solves all the problems. No, because the other call to this is devoting ourselves to that teaching means I'm willing to live it out. I'm gonna let that now become the authority of my life. If I devote myself to the teaching of Jesus, it means that dictates what I see when I look at the world around me. It determines how I will live my life, the way I will do the things I won't do, uh, how I will live. That's what it means to devote ourselves to the teaching. It's not just to adhere. We can have hours and hours of great teaching if we want, right? There's podcasts and YouTube now. Everybody has that opportunity. But if we just continue to ingest more and more knowledge and more and more of God's word, but we don't devote ourselves to live it out, it's both sides of this. God's word must be the authority of our life, therefore it changes us, right? Think about what it means to be the church, right? These are just some of the things, and there's not any order of great, uh, you know, more importance or less, right? But tithing, giving to the church is countercultural. That will not happen regularly on your own apart from the gospel in your life right no one's going to do that no one's going to give up one percent much less ten percent of their uh their um their treasure to be able to say okay god i don't need that because we always need more right a sabbath a taking a rest a working from our rest means that we are going to say i'm only going to give myself six days a week thats counter that is counter-cultural. That doesn't happen in the world. The world is not feeding that to us. It is not giving us that what we, that Jesus is calling us to. Submission, even imagine submitting yourself to others. Whether in marriage, in relationships, saying I'm going to be a servant to the world around me. To love as we have been loved. Right? That is not the message we get from the world. The message we get from the world is like, hey, if we don't like it or they're against you, we're not enemies. And we're fighting one another. Our lives will not naturally flow towards the path of Jesus. We must devote ourselves to the teachings and obedience to Jesus' words, to God's word, daily. And That's what they were doing. The, these four themes, the first one off, just saying like, we've got to get into this. You need this every day. We have to be reset. That's why we talk about it in our liturgy. Our liturgy is for Sunday, but it's for, it's for every day. Every day, we've got to live this out. Every day, we've got to go before God and make it a priority to put God's word as the founding um, basis of how we will live. If we don't, we will not continue to live out the things that Jesus calls us to. I want to say when we do, also, others are astonished by it. It says, in verse uh, 43, and a deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed uh, many miraculous signs and wonders. This goes back to being connected to what God was doing through his people, right? These are people filled by the Holy Spirit. Again, everything we're gonna talk about isn't just something I need to do more of. I need the Spirit to do in me. All of these things are examples of Spirit-filled life. And as Spirit-filled believers, awe and wonders what the world around them had when they saw them living out what God had called them to do. How do you do that? I don't understand it. How do you live with such faith, believing that Jesus is your Savior? How do you be- live in a way that that doesn't put all of this on yourself, but you trust God for your provision of your needs? That's what it means to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to devote ourselves to God's Word. Verse 42 uh, tells us the next thing they, they begin to focus on is koinonia or Fellowship. And it says that all the believers met in one place and shared everything they had. They sold property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. I saw a great example of what this might look like in the church. Our, at, at, and the, the comparison was, to, uh, are we a bag of marbles? Right? If the church is a bag of marbles, what happens is it means that I'm my own individual and we all come together. And when we gather together, um We're just kind of knocking off each other, but we really don't, like our lives don't intermingle, right? And in fact, for most of us, if we were a bag of marbles, um, if I was marble number 192 in a bag, would it matter if I showed up or not? Does it matter if I'm here? Because there's all these other marbles that are there. Um, It says, or would you compare yourself to a bag of grapes? If you think about it, a bag of grapes or, uh, uh, you know, if you were to get a bag of grapes from the grocery store, right, they're all connected on the vine, right? Uh, they start squishing into each other. Um, they make way, like you, they begin to, the juices kind of break up and they mingle together, you become a part of it. And I think of us when we think of fellowshipping together, it's sharing life with one another. we were not our own separate unit, you doing your thing, me doing my thing, but look at what they did. The believers met together and they shared everything they had. Everything they had. Um, it was two years ago in the middle of this uh, craziness that our air conditioner, was probably about this time of the year, our air conditioner went out. Uh, the Pattersons were just barely uh, a, a part of uh, SOMA at the time, had only been to uh, you know to some of our online gatherings. And they showed up at our house with a portable AC unit saying, hey, how, here, I hope this helps. I know it's gotta be hard uh, and we wanna help you out. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've seen that happen where there's a need that's out there and the need is met by the body, not just for ourselves, but for other people. That's what it's called to fellowship with one another, to share our lives with one another. How do we do that? In order to not just be a bag of marbles, we've gotta be willing to share and know each other, right? One of the hardest parts of being the church of fellowshipping with one another is recognizing that other people might hurt me and I might hurt them. And so this idea of fellowship or koinonia the word that's used there, is this picture of us knowing and loving one another so much that even in our brokenness and our mess, we still care and love for the other. That our love of God shows through, right? Um, uh, first, John talks about this, that they, we will be known by our love for one another. But the early church, one of the things that, you know, their devotion to God's word, to the teaching of the apostles, and then the, the outright love for one another, so much so that they were giving of their possessions. Now, they didn't all just sell everything when they started and turn into kind of like a, uh, a communal living situation, like one of the things we've always joked about in some, is like just buying a big ranch and all living out there. That sounds great, right? Um, but they sold things as things were needed, right? And they held on to things, and then as things were needed, they might sell other things and give to the needs that were there, right? To have that heart also means I've got to be willing to bring my need to the table. One of the hardest parts about Being in fellowship with people is recognizing my own neediness and that other people can help me out with that. We can bring our prayers to one another, bring our requests and our needs to one another. So they were sharing in the fellowship, sold possessions, and shared money with those in need. I love other pictures of the churches that there was none among them had any needs because they just continued to give of what they had. This is a selfless living right? It's recognizing that my needs aren't the greatest. It's, again, completely opposite from the world around us, which means just worry about yourself. Take care of yourself first. Figure out for yourself, and then if you have time for everyone else, let's see what happens. This is what the early church looked like. This is what our church ought to look like. The next thing he says, is, and, and, and to the sharing and meals, including the Lord's Supper, They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. This is both communion, right? The idea that every Sunday when we gather we're breaking bread and sharing the juice and every time we do this, we do this in remembrance of Jesus, right? But it's also the regularly sharing of meals. This communion with one another. It's Jesus sharing meals together regularly, inviting others to our house, being invited over, right? Requires both proximity and sacrifice. It requires, you know, thinking of others and looking at who are neighbors that I would want to bring into this. It's a selfless, sacrificial way to live, right? We were just talking about it last night. Um, we're having kind of one of our, uh, what we, it's a nacho kind of quesadilla night at our house. And this was one of those times when, in the past, if the McFarlings were here, they would have just been at our house. We would have said, hey, this is one of those things. What do you want to add to this? And we would do that. And part of that was both like a sad reminder, like they're not here, they've moved on. But the next is like, man, outside, if we hadn't had COVID, we probably would have invited someone over last night. We hadn't had been where we we're at, right? And even that r- reminds us the the loss it is when we can't be together. It's, it's this... Even the sharing of these meals is like a spiritual kind of therapy for our souls, recognizing we need one another. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Every meal, whether we share it with somebody or not, is a reminder of God's provision for us. (coughs) Every meal. And the other picture of this, this idea while they're talking about this thing that they met at home's, Uh, sharing meals with great joy and generosity, the the word picture from that, from the original, meant free from rocks. In other words, everything was smooth and not contentious. As they shared meals together, the more I share a meal with somebody, the harder it is for me to be at odds with them. We say the same thing about prayer. It's really hard to be angry and hate somebody that I'm praying for. It's really hard to be angry and upset at somebody if I'm sharing a meal with them if I'm inviting them over, if I'm enjoying their delicious food and they're enjoying it with me. And so we look at this idea of the early church as sharing meals means it was a picture of communion <coughs> and no contentiousness. And then lastly, and they prayed the and to prayer. <coughs> they worship together at the temple each day, verse 46, and while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. When they got together, what is one of the things they did? If they weren't sharing a meal or sharing in the needs, they were praying for one another. Continually lift up. I mean, part of even the understanding of the needs was probably coming out of prayer. And then out of prayer is like, God, what do I need to do in light of that? So many times we have um, things. Um, material possessions and we just assume this is what God wants us to do with it rather than going to God and saying God what is it you want us to do asking God seeking God in prayer I have my house, my cars, my my finances, my talents, my treasure, my time God what will I do with that we find that out through prayer devoting ourselves to prayer. They prayed when they were together. Prayers like this spark personal involvement, right? In each other's life and communication with God. When I sit down with somebody and I pray for them or I hear them pray for themselves, that's one of the things that God has been blessing me by over the years of our church is like hearing other people pray for themselves helps me know how to pray for them, right? But sometimes we're afraid of praying or well, I don't know if I'll say the right thing or prayer becomes this weird thing uh, you know, thing that we don't really, are we good at? it? I don't know. Rather than just going like, man, these, these 3,000 people never prayed to God like this. And so he's showing them what does it look like to communicate with God, to be in connection with God, right? And the other part of this is I believe praying like this, praying with believers is a magnifier, right? It opens us up and others and it shows them, right? It shows them this is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with. Maybe that's part of our fear of prayers. It is a vulnerable place because I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. And he's simply just dialoguing with the Father. They continue that. And I love that each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. That's a part of the prayers as the continual prayer to God saying, God, we trust you. Would you bring this? Would you do this work? Even today, right, the spirits at work, this, my even preaching is all about what will the spirit do with this. I don't know. I can't make you walk out of here and do anything different, but the spirit can. And I'm believing that the spirit will do something when we pray. And so this continual devotion to prayer, praying together, praying for one another, praying for those who don't yet know Jesus is a picture of what the church looked like. As I was thinking through these things, I thought of these four areas and maybe um, uh, four hindrances uh, and then four ways we might be able to kind of live this out and walking forward through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So if we're looking at God's word, the first hindrance I would look to is our devotion to other things, right? Um, It's not that we don't have time to read God's word. It's probably that we've just devoted our hearts to something else we've given our hearts and our desire to something other than God. And hear that not as condemnation, but as like a light to go on to go, God, I want that revealed so that I would be devoted to your word and to you. And that might even be a question that God was stirring that in my own heart as I was preparing this. What are the other things I am devoted to other than God that I'm giving myself to? that I put in my calendar, that I put in my life day in and day out, rather than focusing on God and His Word and devoting myself to what God has already shown me to do and what God is calling me to do moving forward. So hindrance to God's Word might be our devotion to other things. We also see a hindrance to our fellowship would be a fear of being known, of our needs being exposed, or even having to share our needs. So often, we want to live a life where we'll be free to take everyone else's needs, but I don't want anyone to know my needs, that I'm broken, that I have needs, and I'm afraid if I expose that need to others, they will leave me. I will be alone, or they'll just look at me and go, there's no way God can work through you. And I love thinking about these 120 uh, uh, disciples and apostles that are, sharing this good news that are bringing people into fellowship. And I love Peter going like, no, 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 no. I denied him three times. I ran the other way. There's nothing you've done that he can't love you through. Like bringing all of that out so that our fears and our worries would be exposed and that that's actually a good thing. And that brings us into more fellowship. I mean, think about the people you're closest to. You're close to them because you, they know you and they still love you. And they push into those things. They don't run away from them. That's what the church looks like. And so a hindrance to us that would keep us from fellowship is a fear of being known or our needs being exposed. Uh, a hindrance to communion both with God and with others is individualism, right? I don't need others. I'm actually better by myself. Others either slow me down or others are just a, you know, a part of the church that I don't really get. I wanna just have my own relationship with God. I don't need communion with others. Again, this is a very important picture in the early days. They were sharing meals daily. They were gathering in the temple daily. They were practicing the Lord's Supper daily together because it wasn't about the individual. Yes, 3,000 individuals were saved, but yet they became a part of communing together. And so our individualism that thinks I don't need others or I don't want others or that I'm better about myself is a lie that keeps us out of experiencing true communion. Again, both with others and with God. Because when I think I don't need others, I'm really also saying I don't think I really need God. And then lastly, prayer. There's a plethora of reasons I could probably put out here for why we don't pray. I think the one that probably creeps up most for us is we're too busy for it. That I don't think it's necessary or I don't think it does anything, right? In light of all the tragedies that have happened over the last few months that we've watched on the news of shootings and all kinds of things and we see this, you know, kind of, I've just seen a meme going around, you know, the circle is, uh, this thing happens, our thoughts and prayers go out and then nothing changes and we just keep going over and over again. It's just an undermining that prayer doesn't do anything. And that's a lie. If we believe prayer did something, we'd never be too busy for it, right? When we're desperate, again, I can't, I, I in my life, those times when I'm desperate for God to do something because it's out of my control, I, I'm like praying all the time. The moment I take my mind off that, that I think I've got it all under control, my prayer life goes down, you know, to almost nothing because I don't think I need it. So I don't think it's necessary or don't think it does does anything or I'm just too busy. I filled my life with other things. I found ways to kind of keep my mind off of my troubles where I've got it all going on and I can't even give it to God. So these are some of the hindrances. Maybe there's different hindrances for you. It's important to even think through them. What are the hindrances for me in these four areas? How is it directly working? And then lastly, closing us up, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out each one of these days, we're not meant to do this unempowered. So the next step of this isn't just like, go do, right? The next step is, Holy Spirit, I need your power to do what's next. Not uh, Randy's gonna make a list of things and I just need to go do them because that's the right thing to do. The Spirit will make it clear to you, I have no doubt what it is you need to do to take next steps. The, the onus you have is, to take that next step and maybe the best way is even to share that so if we're going to have a daily encounter in god's word we need to have a plan for that um, we don't encounter god's word encounter god in his word daily usually because we don't have a plan or we don't stick to a plan right we need to know where are we going with that are we going to read through a bible, book of the bible or are we going to where, where are we going with that is that you know using an app the bible project app or lectio 365 or the bible app Whatever it is, if it's just a reading plan, most Bibles, if you look at them, I'm looking at mine right now, has a Bible reading plan in the back of it. I can just go through right now and start reading. It's this day I start reading this passage, right? But I will not encounter God daily if I do not get into God's word on a regular basis. Find ways to do it. Spirit, empower me to do that, to get rid of things that are hindering me from that. Where am I devoted to other things? Help me not to be devoted to God's word. Put that as a priority. The second thing is being known, right? To be known means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that others might be able to know who you are. Is to commit to DNA regularly, knowing others and others knowing you. Do people know your mess? Do people know where you're hurting, the things that you don't want to say out loud to other people? Is fear keeping you from that? Empowerment of the Holy Spirit means I can share that and know that I'm a loved son or you're a loved daughter of God. And these things don't hinder me from that. They actually free me. They free me to be known and to know others. Right? That's the beauty of that. As they know one another, as they see one another more clearly, they don't run from one another. They give of what they have to one another. They shared, no one's in need. No one's in need. Next, maybe it's looking at breaking bread, committing to MC meals and other life together, right? And then communing with God. I think these two pieces go hand in hand. To like have relationship and communing with God is recognizing that God is a part of my life. God, what are you doing and where are you at and how can I join in with you? And then where is that going on, sharing meals and life with, uh, together with other people? From our trip last week to Colorado, some of the best times we have are just sitting around underneath these little tarps having dinner together and love hearing the laughter and stories that come out of that. The fun things that we're reminded of, the way it grows us in our connection to one another when we get together for meals and we learn more about who we are and what we love and what we are about, it changes us. So to break bread with one another, to commune with one another on a regular basis. We do a lot of this, family, and I pray we continue to do it more, open our houses more. Who are we inviting in to join in with us in this this, um, reality? And then lastly, prayer. This is something we've already talked about that we're trying to incorporate more and more each week as we go together, but praying together uh, as we can, praying on your own with your spouse, with family members. Um, and then ultimately, I think the end of this, these verses are talking about them praying for people to be saved, recognizing that that's only something God can do, right? We have to be faithful to speak the truth about Jesus, their need for Jesus, but that God can and is still saving people. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, we won't pray for it, right? How many things has God done to show over again, these 3,000 people are about to go out and disperse all amongst the world and create the greatest movement of God that had ever happened at that point. And it's because they were empowered by the spirit and it started through prayer and breaking bread together and being known and daily encounters in God's word, that fellowship and communion. This is all good news, right? Is it going to be awkward for some people to join in with it? Sure, it might be. But it might be the very thing they're desiring and, and wanting in their life. And we're just answering that question for them. Oh, I don't know if they'll like it. I'm not sure they'll be willing to commit and give up. We've recognized, right? It, my life is better devoted to God, living this out, being known by others, sharing everything that I have with other people in prayer than it is apart from God. Absolutely. So why wouldn't it be the same for my lost neighbor or friend or relative or whoever it might be? We would seek after and pray that God would save the souls of those who are far from him. He turned Nineveh upside down, 120,000 people. He came into the city of Jerusalem and said, here's where it's going to go out from here and spread to the rest of the world. He can do that in us today. He can do that in us through Zoom today. We don't even have to be in the same place. That's how powerful he is. And that's what we want to pray for and ask God to do. That this good news would radically change and shape our life. That we would be devoted to it so much that we would not look the same as the world around us. Church, my prayer is that we would continue to come back to this and not be shamed into prayer or shamed into God's word, but see the importance and the need of it. If we're going to follow after Jesus, we have to have it. We have to have it. That's my heart and my prayer today. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for those who given of their time today to be online. God, I pray for Selma. Pray for the men and women and children that make up this church, that we would be devoted to your word. Committed to living out the teachings of Jesus, to love and be known for our love for others, to stand up for those who are marginalized, hurt, and broken. that we would be committed to living life together, to being known, to sharing our needs, being broken, to communing with one another and the life and relationship that means and devoting and committing ourselves to prayer. Would your spirit stir in our church? Would we get an image of those tongues of fire over our hearts right now? We are empowered by Your Spirit to do awe and want, works of awe and wonder to the world around us. Again, not for our glory, so that people would look at us and go, "Those people are amazing." But that they might look at us and go, "How are they doing that? How is that happening right now in them?" And that we would go, "It's only Jesus. It's only through Jesus." You delight in using your people for your mission and your world. May you do that in us. Would you burden our hearts for the lost? Would you break our hearts for the world around us that is dying and going to spend eternity separated from you that we might be able to bring good news? That our city, Austin, Cedar Park, and Leander. Our neighborhoods will be radically transformed by people living out the truth of the gospel, the truth of the good news in Jesus. We ask this, we beg for this, we plead for this. In Jesus' name, amen.